Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hark, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, as we record this episode, the S&P 500 is down 17% from its last record. Cinching closer to that 20% threshold that marks what most people consider to be a bear market. But what's interesting is that what we're once considered the most innovative companies and really the most profitable stocks to own are faring much worse. The NASDAQ 100, for example, is down almost 27%. So what exactly is it about our current environment with red hot inflation and a sprint higher in interest rates that is kryptonite for innovative companies? And what will it take to make those types of stocks market leaders again? We're going to get into it with the chief investment officer for public equities at a major Wall Street asset management firm. But first, Veltana, I have to say, I hope you did not go around last week telling everyone your high school nickname. Did you? No, I haven't. Okay, good. Because as I you know, I wouldn't. as you know, that is a hot commodity in podcast land. I think we've already gotten a few more reviews on Apple Podcast uh, by holding out the promise of your high school nickname. So I think if we get to 350 ratings will reveal it. Does that sound good? So you're holding out on people. You're dra- you're letting this drag out a little bit longer. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, well, uh, just let the record show and let the listeners show that this was your idea to hold them hostage. Th- they know that- Not mine. Yes. No, th- I think it's well yeah. known that any crazy scheme, <laughs> any gimmick on this show is usually my terrible idea, but it works. I will say it works. And uh, yeah, so go on your Apple uh, podcast app, and give us a rating. I'm not saying it has to be five stars, but you know, hey, that, that's the highest rating. And uh, give, give Mike a rating. Give, give, and write us a review. <laughs> Make him happy, <laughs> right? Maybe even suggest new nicknames for us. Whatever it takes, we'll we'll take it. But that's the way that we sort of spread the word about the podcast uh, and and give listeners who are just uh, finding it on Apple a little hint at uh, what kind of show it is and and how well received or not well received it is. I don't know. 
I don't know. We'll find out. We'll we'll see how well this uh, idea of yours to, to hold listeners hostage works. <laughs> <laughs> In the meantime, <laughs> I'm hoping we can hear from our guest this week, Katie Koch. She's the chief investment officer of public equity at Goldman Sachs Asset Management is joining us this week. Katie, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. She came, yeah, ba- real- she came back and we didn't even make her reveal any nicknames. It was pretty nice. <laughs> myself, I would say. Katie, just to start, we have this stat that your team had sent us over. They said that you manage something like $20 billion of tech slash innovation assets. And yet at the same time, we know that growth has been underperforming year to date. So I was hoping you could talk to us about this and tell us how you're thinking about it. Sure. Absolutely. Um, I will say when I... Um, knew I needed to do this podcast today. I wanted to start with some advice to you guys. I think it, it, the, the podcast is called What Goes Up. <laughs> and it's a, it's a short list. <laughs> you might you might want to you might want to rename it for for the near term. But on a, on a very serious note, um it uh we are big believers on investing client capital into the innovation space. I I did just want to impress upon something that we've been saying uh, for the last several years, which is that we think when people step into these innovation themes and we can unpack them in more detail, they really needed to really need to be committed uh, for the long term. I don't I don't think any of these things are tactical trades. Generally, I think it's really tough to time the markets, but I think it's particularly true in a lot of these high innovation areas. Uh, so I do I do want to say that at, at the outset that we think it's strategic, not tactical. Um, the second thing that I would say is that I do think that the dislocation has been very severe, particularly in public markets. Um, just you, you had asked earlier why that is. I mean, the very basic explanation for that is that growth assets, the cash flows are the furthest out. So they're kind of the, the longest duration assets, if you will. And they're the most hurt when it looks like rates are going to rise, which is obviously the environment we're in. Um, and so that was that's a big leg down of most of the pain that's been experienced in, in tech. Um, and everything's correlated effectively to one. Um, and so that's been a painful absolute return experience. But we think people who are already in these assets should have patience around it because eventually growth it'll will be in a world where growth is scarce. Um, and, and these assets should re-rate on the back of that. And if you don't think you have enough exposure to this part of the market, I think the recent correction actually provides some really compelling entry points to get exposure to technology as a, as a secular theme. So that's kind of how I would think about it. Tech is down at the moment, but it's not out. Don't give up on it. And I'm very happy to go into more detail in terms of why we think it's going to work from here and what we like. That would be great, Katie. I'd, I'd love to unpack that some more. But I will say one thing that is going up is interest rates. So we, we can talk mm-hmm. about that. <laughs> that's true. And, that, that, and in, that's true. <laughs> and inflation, of course, too. And commodities. Uh, there are some and, things going up. Just not, just not a lot in the innovation space today. Yeah. But therein lies the opportunity, I guess. I think I think blood pressure among portfolio managers is, <laughs> is always too. But I wanted to sort of get your take on what is so toxic about uh, inflation and rising interest rates, sp- specifically for those long duration tech companies that that you mentioned. I mean, we'll often hear sort of from the macro level a couple reasons why rising rates are, are so bad. Obviously, you know, if a company's heavy, he- heavily levered up and has, you know, 
to take on new debt, re, you know, rolling over debt into higher interest rates. That that's an obvious one. Also, you know, just the the risk free rate of the market and Treasuries going higher, sort of a, 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 as you point out, you know, is is really kind of dangerous for those long duration assets. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I look at the S and P five hundred at least as a whole, and it seems like you know the leverage, the balance sheets are are health healthier than past years on based on mm-hmm. most metrics. Now your your debt to enterprise value or your your debt to earnings ratios, any sort of debt to fill in the blank ratio seems to be fairly healthy. So is this all about that risk free rate? You know, we can finally get three percent in treasuries, and the assumption being that you know inflation's one day, knock on wood, we'll go back to two percent and we'll get a, a positive real yield. Is that the main catalyst, do you think? I think that certainly plays a part in what's happening here. Again, as rates go up, these cash flows are further out. It puts pressure, downward pressure on these stocks, but it's not that in, in isolation. Um, I, I'd say a, a second issue is just where valuations were. So valuations for broad equity markets um, were in their high 90th percentile, most expensive rel- relative to history. You you mentioned at the outset that equity markets have corrected 17% from the highs. Roughly, it moves around a little bit, but that's about true. And valuations are still in their 90th most expensive percentile. So there's only two things that can really drive equity markets, which is multiples and earnings. And, and the multiples were already quite high, demanding mostly good news. And actually what we've gotten is mostly bad news. So I think the valuations are, are certainly part of it. So you have this this long duration issue of cash flows working against you. You have the multiple uh, was too high, arguably broadly and in tech specifically. And then I think, you know, related to a lot of this is the inflationary pressures and this dawning realization that the central bank put is gone. Um, in other words, the market kind of got used to the reality that when things were difficult, the central bank would come in and cut rates. But if they're actually forming another, performing another important task, which is trying to control inf- inflation, they're less likely to do that in the absence of a major recession. And so it's a combination of all of those issues that are really weighing down uh, on this part of the market. But if you want to step in here, because I think actually ultimately this is a deeply secular opportunity. Um, I had mentioned this to you guys, but the um, CEO of Microsoft, uh, Satya Nadella, said on his call, he was being pushed on this very issue. The macro environment's tough. How are you going to operate through this? And he kind of gave an answer that was, I I don't focus so much on that day-to-day because over the next decade, tech as a percentage of GDP spend rather is going to double. So it's an incredible opportunity. And we know that company managements all over the world are going to continue to invest in innovation just to survive and also to take market share. And so this, these things will work and they're going to work really, really well. Um, it just at the moment we have to, it has been dislocated. And as I said earlier, I, I would think about that as an opportunity if you have, if you have patient capital to come in and, and step in here, um, and, and buy some of these assets. I just think you have to be balanced. It's not, it's, I have very little conviction on that on a 24 hour, one week, even couple of months view. I, I think it will work out over the long term, but you have to be patient and you have to be balanced about it. We are not, in my view, going to have a V-shaped recovery. 
like people might be a recent data point in people's mind given the pandemic, but that's not what we're set up for here. We're kind of set up for the hard work of hopefully stabilizing the multiple and these companies delivering earnings. And so in my view, there will be strong recoveries and return opportunities from here, um, but it's going to take longer for, for that to be realized. Can you, Katie, maybe narrow down that list for us? So what specifically are you looking at? What are you finding attractive? And maybe what are you guys uh, buying right now? Yeah, so areas, themes that we'd focus on just because we're talking about innovation now. I mean, the way we do we do this is we think about how's the world going to change over the next decade? What are the big themes? And then obviously trying to pick the right companies within those themes. So the themes that we're focused on here is the energy transition. Um, we also, so this is, you know, climate, for example. Um, we also are interested in the future of tech. So the technology companies beyond the fangs down the market cap around the world. Um, we like the future, disruptive future of, of healthcare um, and how that's going to change the world. Uh, the consumer, uh, particularly the millennial and Gen Z consumer. And then we're invested in the real estate and infrastructure that will underpin all of that. So those are some of the, the major themes. Um, I want wanted to come back to this point on, on balance, and then we can dig into any of those in more detail. But I do think it is prudent. We always believe this to be prudent. And this is the reason some of our thematic strategies have, have done better than the peer group. It's always prudent to have some balance in these strategies. So yes, we like these themes, but we don't have to just be in companies that are growth at any price. We can own more expensive, innovative companies, for example, software, a snowflake, which still trades at uh, 20 times on EV to sale. These are still, despite the correction, rich multiples, but they're high growth companies. We can own that in the future of tech alongside, for example, something in the semi space, uh, which trades at much more reasonable valuations, a 20% discount to where it's been uh, relative to the last 10 years in certain instances and get that balance in the portfolio between the high growth names um, and, and some of those more value or cyclical oriented names. And we do that really across every theme. In healthcare, we own some of the medical device companies, which are more valuation grounded. And then we own stuff in the genomic space, which is obviously very high growth oriented. So we focus on the themes, pick the companies and try and have a balance within those themes of those high growth companies, along with some of the more cyclically exposed value oriented names as well. Katie, you know what I, I find interesting when we talk about innovation uh, and what stocks will benefit from that is we've almost had sort of the opposite problem with those. You know, you mentioned the big fang companies, mm -hmm. um, you know, to me, you know, and these companies just got so huge, you know, Apple at what, two and two and a half trillion, whatever it is uh, at the moment. To me, Apple is kind of uh, struggling with innovation these days. You know, you've got you've got the iPhone. You, you wait for that sort of iPhone replacement cycle. You've got the Mac, uh, you've got the services revenue is strong, um, but the promise of sort of more innovation from, from say, an Apple, you know, there was talk of them getting into TVs or, or automotive electric vehicles, um, and not just to pick on Apple, but I, I feel like Amazon might be struggling with the same thing. You know, here, Amazon started by disrupting the, the book industry, went on to disrupt every sort of retail industry there is. Then it found a lot of growth in the cloud uh, business, but I feel like for you know a lot of these big companies, Facebook included, um, th they've sort of reached saturation. So uh, you know the question is, when you're looking for innovation, does it re 
necessarily require going down the ladder as far as uh, market size and finding, you know, undiscovered sort of small cap stocks where, you know, is there a case to be made of, of any of these companies sort of being leaders in innovation again? I guess the yeah. one, you know, the the one alluring thing everyone likes to talk about is the metaverse, you know, with, with mm-hmm. Facebook. I'm not sure anyone's buying that, though, uh, you know, the, the growth potential there. But how do you think about that? I know this is a, a very long winded question, which is my specialty. But, but how, do you, <laughs> how do you think about that notion of, you know, the size factor of a stock as it relates to their potential to innovate and disrupt? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a hugely, it, it may have been a long question, but it's an important one too, because these <laughs> companies dominate a lot of, a lot of the market, right? So we have 1% of the number of companies taking up still, despite all of the movement out there, more than 20% of the market cap. I will say in a sign of the times, um, Apple is actually no longer the world's most valuable company that changed oh, that's uh, right. yeah. this week. Arampo, because, right? Uh, exactly. Um, but big picture, here's I, I want to make, make a couple of big picture comments uh, briefly about those top dominant companies and kind of where we see them going from here. And then I'm, I'm going to end with an argument that like, yeah, I do think you need to own stuff well beyond them and around the world. But in, in those in those companies themselves, they you made a, you made the comment around um, saturation. I mean, that's one way of looking at. They're also facing some regulatory challenges too. Um, but just looking at the long arc of history, if we look at the ten largest companies twenty years ago, um, and then compare them to the ten today, there's actually only two companies that are still on that list. Microsoft's one of them. Um, the other eight went on to destroy close to $400 billion of market cap during a great bull market for equities. So I kind of look at it and think a lot about, and our team does the creative destruction, how difficult it is for those companies to stay persistently amongst the largest companies in the world for some of the reasons that you just outlined in terms of the challenges that they are facing. So that is a reason we think people need to diversify away from those companies to find the future winners that will be able, that that are going to show up on that list, because obviously that's one of the great ways to create wealth. I would just balance those comments. Um, We do own some of those large incumbents, not all of them, but we take positions in some of them because you can't uh, forget, particularly in an environment like this, how incredibly strong the balance sheets of these companies are. And when you're sitting in 30, 50, 100, in some cases, more billion dollars of cash on the balance sheet, that gives you clearly the ability to navigate an uncertain environment, but also the ability to buy or invest in the next big thing. You talked about metaverse. Well, Facebook can do that because they're highly free cash flow generative and they have $30 billion of cash on the balance sheet. And they were able to get into the next property, which was, um, you know, for example, Instagram, because they were able to buy that. So I just think you got to take into account that they have a lot of firepower um, to navigate a difficult environment and also to get on the right side of innovation and disruption. The question is whether or not they have the management team um, and the execution capability to continue to do that. And it's true, been true over time that not all of them do. So you got to be selective about that. Pick your spots in those big companies, but definitely diversify uh, into the future leaders. Um, and then in addition to that, looking around the world, because um, uh, because of the ubiquity of cloud and 5G, a lot of these companies are going to be actually found outside of Silicon Valley and outside the US. It, the market's not showing us that right now because some of those companies are are facing a lot of pressure on a day-to-day basis, but they are going to be disruptive and they may be the future winners. And that growth, by the way, is actually very much on sale. The growth rates are higher 
clearly, outside of the big incumbents. And right now, if you took the highest quintile growth and the lowest quintile growth, it has the tightest valuation compression that we've had in a very, very long time. In other words, you don't right now have to pay a big premium to get into the growthier parts of tech. And I'll end by saying there's lots of stuff we like and are excited about outside of the fangs, including semis, which we talked about briefly, software, and then also cyber, which we haven't mentioned, but we think is an incredible space with actually a big tailwind because of the current geopolitical tensions. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Katie, I remember when COVID first broke out uh, a couple of years ago, you and I ended up talking and, and you told me all about the names that you were looking at. You know, you mentioned, you know, the future of, of things and you were talking about this post-COVID world. And back then you said uh, you had been looking at companies that were heavily discounted and you were looking also at back to work plays, catering, mm-hmm. child care, names focused on services, spending and stuff that's fun, I think you had said. So I what do you what do you make of of those types of companies at this point? Yeah, so people like to have fun. That's a pretty pretty persistent theme through different economic cycles, and that we like things in the real economy. Um, and having fun is related to the consumer. The right now data on the consumer is very strong. We ingest credit card data all day, every day, like many of our peers, in addition to running a fundamental business, which we're talking about a lot here. I have the privilege of also running a quant business where we ingest a lot of that data. And I can tell you across all metrics, the consumer, particularly the U.S. consumer, looks very strong. Um, We are preparing portfolios for a world in which that consumer may weaken because of some of the macro stresses that we've already talked about here, inflation uh, being at the the top of the, the top of that list. Um, and so what does that mean as it relates to some of the ideas that you just brought up and also this concept of having fun? If you're in the right part of having fun, it can actually be recession resistant. So there's parts of the consumer basket that come under pressure during a recession and, and, and travel, for example, might be one of those. But we like affordable experiences because we do think that this millennial preference for experience over things is incredibly persistent. Um, and so we lean into those experiences, but more affordable experiences in the event that the 
macro environment deteriorates. And so, for example, we have exposure to concert companies uh, both here in the U.S. as well as in Europe. Um, so in the U.S., we own Live Nation, for example, because Beyonce is uh, ultimately recession resistant. Um, and <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and I love that. Amazing. So many things, but that too. But then in, in addition to that would be a category like beauty, um, which can do well when times are good and also shows a lot of resilience, um, even if you get into an economic correction. So we do own parts of the real economy for sure. Uh, that comes back to having balance in the portfolio. On the consumer, I'd say we do have exposure, but we're trying to make sure that we are eyes wide open about some of the downward pressure they may face down the road. Beyonce is recession resistant. Hold on, yeah. I think we found our headline there for for the That's podcast. The, anyway, just the, the specific yeah, sure. on that is that, like, just to to give data, so it sounds like a flippant comment, but this company, Live Nation, if you looked at ticket sales back in '08, um, they actually never went went negative. Uh, so the consumer will will spend in a recession. You just have to be; they'll be quite selective in terms of of what they spend on. That's and then the other thing I would. The other thing I would say just from being the importance of being global is that another place where you can find some interesting consumer names or or even consumer names around the world with exposure to this um, would be China, which is obviously in a very tough situation at the moment, which has been reflected into equity prices with effectively a third of the productive capacity. How, there's different ways of looking at it, but of China being closed. That is putting pressure on supply chains, which is obviously coming through in the CPI print. But it also, uh, the consumer has been quite weak, clearly, uh, since many of them are under zero COVID policy lockdowns. Uh, I don't, I'm not a macro person, and I don't think we have a big edge on calling near-term macro. Um, I, I am highly convicted that China will once again reopen. That's one thing I can say with with great degree of certainty, because it's not possible to run an economy that way long-term, and it would create instability. And we're hoping to see more movement towards that as we reach the 20th Party Congress in the fall. And I think you can buy assets here in the U.S., as well as assets in China that are overly discounted for something that we know is eventually going to work out, which is that the economy will reopen. So, for example, luxury goods sector and LVMH or a Montclair are names that we own that we think are being overly discounted. Um, and that because we know that the Chinese consumer will come back. We actually had the pattern recognition on that established because we've seen the consumer globally come back and buy in the luxury space um, after previous lockdowns. And actually, luxury is also somewhat counterintuitively uh, has some protection and recessions too, because that segment of the consumer um, gets, uh, gets, gets less hit. So all the sort of delisting uh, concerns and the, the sort of trade tensions, the lingering trade tensions, mm. they don't, they don't scare you away from China at all. I, I think those are real concerns. You, there's, there's the lockdown, there's the potential for delistings, there's the regulation, the, the tech regulation, and then there's the broader U.S. Sino tensions. Um, but we've kind of talked about the lockdown. I, 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 I'm hoping that we don't go to delistings, but if we do, we have the ability to buy these companies on the Hong Kong exchange, as do most investors. So I think there'll be a tough transition period, but it will work itself out. Um, I think the tech regulation, we, we actually have a lot of clarity on what that's going to look like. And the U.S. Sino or Western Sino tensions, they're going to be there for a while. But the question is whether or not that's that's imputed in valuations. And at the moment, this is in some areas a 50% discount to the US. So there's a lot of margin of safety there. And then I just say one more thing um, about investing in, in China. 
um, which is that the government's actually quite clear about what their priorities are. Um, and the reality is that once they announce those, it gets discounted into markets immediately because they have the ability, unlike in the U.S., to actually implement those policies immediately. So if you pay attention to what they're saying, you can actually get on the right side of this regulation. So I'll just end with you know, a, a, another example of something in China. We own a, we've told you why we like software already. Uh, we, we do like it as a space. Very famous Robert Smith quote, software is better than first lean debt because they're so essential to the running of companies. That's true in the U.S. It's true in China. We own a company called King D Software, an essential software for many small, medium enterprises in, in China. We know the government is going to support small, medium enterprises, particularly coming out of this lockdown. Uh, and we know that the government is very supportive of digitalization, again, particularly of small businesses. So this is a tech company that's not going to get caught, most likely not going to get caught in the crosshairs um, of regulation, compounding at a very high rate and looking extremely attractive to its own history and the software sector broadly. So again, challenges, a lot of it discounted in, selectively one can can find opportunities. Yeah. Also some interesting news this week where China basically came out and said that uh, all state enterprises need to start buying domestic uh, computers and software. That That's certainly, uh, certainly going to open up some opportunities, I would imagine. I- yeah, that I, I would pick up on that and saying that's a very important point. This is obviously a sign of deglobalization. Um, and we are believers that the tech ecosystem is going to build out. We already have the splinter net, but other parts of the tech ecosystem, including the semi-supply chain and hardware, are going to build out separately in China than they are in the U.S. And so the U.S. is also going to invest more in supply chain security of, of chips. It's a, it's a national security issue. We, at the moment, cannot manufacture at the leading edge um, for chips in the U.S. That is, that's unacceptable, really, from a, from a national security perspective. And so this country is going to invest a lot in, in, in building out that supply chain. That's, by the way, ultimately inflationary, um, but it does create some opportunities. And so one thing that we are invested in across many of our portfolios is that uh, localization, rebuilding out of the semi-supply chain. And we own, for example, the semi-equipment manufacturers as a way to benefit from that. Um, and that, I'd end that by saying you can you can be you can do two things. You can say, "Wow, this is really scary. China's building out this totally separate ecosystem," or you can say, "Well, it's the world's second largest economy. It's a very big equity market, and I want to own a piece of that for my clients too, because there's going to be a lot of investment happening there." We obviously choose to believe the the latter, but try and be very selective about what to own and what prices to buy it at. Katie, just to bring things back uh, mm. to the U.S. There was something that really struck me in one of the notes you had sent us over before the podcast. And I actually ended up writing wow in my notes on your note. And it said, while we have a very difficult setup, returns will be lower the next 10 years. And you Mm -hmm. said we're not entering the 1970s, but we need to be aggressive in finding opportunities. So can you talk about that and and this idea that things will not be so great over the next decade? Yeah, I guess that is kind of a wow comment. What do you what do you say it that way? But it, but it is it, it is what I believe to be true and something I really want people to reflect on as they manage their own personal wealth. When you look at uh, we, I kind of think about that through the lens of the sixty forty portfolio, so sixty stocks, um, forty bonds. And I say that because that's generally how most people around the world are are kind of allocated, and that's been a phenomenal asset to own through the last cycle that has returned 8% real 
uh, returns, so after inflation returns. You compound that 8% annually. I mean, you guys know that's incredibly powerful and, and, and great news, particularly for people on a fixed income. That return was more like 5% over the last 100 years and about negative 9% year to date. Um, and so my point is that a lot of returns were pulled forward. Uh, into the previous 10 years, which suggests the next 10 years, returns are going to be harder to come by. And I think people need to be prepared for that environment as they plan for their retirement, as they think about what they're going to spend. Um, and I think they need to prepare for it by being more active in their portfolio and seeking out those returns. Um, and that leads us back to, you know, so what do you do? You should be, in our view, if we are going to have inflation, uh, we would recommend people be overweight equities relative to fixed income. And in the equities bucket, um, again, I, I want to acknowledge my biases here as an active manager, but clearly these tre- like tremendous dislocation in markets creates really interesting entry points and, and opportunities for active managers to hopefully do a lot better than that passive portfolio. Um, and I don't think that were set up for the lost decade uh, of the 1970s. There's a lot of reasons. It, it is actually different this time, including, I mean, I won't go through the whole list, but for example, employment's in, in a much stronger place, uh, where inflation's nowhere near um, as high as it was then, and we have more of the tools to tackle it, more central, more independent central banks globally, et cetera. But it is going to be a return. It is going to be rather a decade of lower returns. And you're not just going to be able to sit and own passive assets and hope it all works out. You're going to have to take more control of, of, of your destiny. And we're working with a lot of people to, to do that, particularly in their equity portfolios. You know, Katie, I know uh, at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, you spend a lot of time sort of listening to what C- CEOs and CFOs have to say, uh, wh- you know, what, what their mm-hmm. plans are. Um, you know, uh, uh, unlike myself, they probably return your calls when, when you when you call them. quite a quite a luxury you have there but i'm curious is is there a way to sort of um quantify ceo cfo sentiment right now are they scared are they looking for opportunities what's kind of the vibe out there from the c-suite as far as you can tell um i would say it's cautious so they do return our calls that's one of the benefits of 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 of, of being at, at Goldman Sachs and having the privilege. I also don't return no, yeah, my calls, true. by the way. No one does. I think my phone might be broken. I'm not sure. Yeah, so no, I, I appreciate you asking that. And we are really delighted that we get great access to management teams on behalf of our clients. And I think we do get good data points. And I, I go back to what I was uh, just saying that I, I think they're cautious. And you see that because, again, the market, you, as you, we started, down 17% since the highs. Did we have a bad earnings season? No. Yeah. We had a very, it was actually very good earnings. So, again, the right now data is suggesting the fundamentals are quite strong and healthy. But you asked a very important question, which is what does sentiment look like? And and sentiment is 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 more challenged than that. And that's also reflected in guidance being lower. Because these cycle tested management teams, which are obviously the ones we try and commit capital to, you know, they've seen this movie before and they know that we're entering a more difficult operating environment. And I think the best, if people want to really get insight into what a great management team is kind of thinking and saying and how they're trying to prepare themselves um, for this operating environment, they should read Dara, the CEO of um, Uber's letter to his employees. 
about what this environment will look like, how they're going to have to operate differently, that they can't just go out and talk about how big the market opportunity if there's not profitable, excuse me, if they're not profitable, because investors don't care. And you just like imputing some of that realism into the way that you're running a business. Um, that's what we see a lot of management teams doing and the ones who want to commit capital to that have been through this before, that know how to work through this grind, that have that have raised capital when it was available, not when they needed to, um, that know how to motivate people, that know how to lead people, that know how to run the company in a way that will be received well uh, by investors, which will obviously help stock prices. That That's 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 what we're hearing and what we want to see from from great management teams. And I, I just want to end by saying um, we never, you know, it's bad when returns are absolute negative, um, for sure. Uh, we that is not w- what we're trying to do here. We're trying to help our clients retire with dignity and security. And as I said earlier, it moves in cycles and feel very confident we'll come back. But moments like this, where stock prices are dislocated, on top of the operating environment being very challenging, this is very very rich for differentiation. There are some companies that are publicly listed that may not survive what's happening right now. And obviously, we want to avoid those. Uh, and, and we will. Uh, and then you want to find, um, allocate to to the ones that will differentiate, you know, try and sort through the pretenders versus the contenders, if you will. And that's what we're spending a lot of time doing on behalf of our clients. I actually had wanted to ask you what you make of this idea that the market is sniffing out these sort of worrisome developments or worrisome signals in the micro data. So we, we talked mm-hmm. about, you know, Fed and inflation, some of the bigger concerns. But I know I, I wrote about uh, this interview a nonstick coding CEO had given on Bloomberg TV where he was saying the way his orders are coming in, it just looks like recessionary behavior. So what do you make of these sort of micro signals that are flashing warning signs? For my micro signals, very, very important. And that is what we spend a lot of time with management teams doing. And I think they can be quite predictive about where the economic cycle is going. And there are ways to consume that uh, now through big data. And we do get access to a lot of that. So near-term orders, et cetera. Um, but some of it you do get just from speaking to, to management teams. And, and you generally will start to see um, the the pain show up there first. I would just say it's a little bit conflated right now because of all the supply chain issues we've had. So you, you can't, you have to be very careful about looking at this data because it's quite lumpy. But I, I do think the micro signals are important. Um, absolutely. Katie, I know you also like private markets. I'm, I want to ask you what's attractive to you in the private market. Sure. I, we, we are believers at Goldman Sachs Asset Management that clients should have, if they are able to, to get invested to both public as well as private markets. That That, that is absolutely true. Um, I, I would say at the moment, uh, great news for people that are interested in public markets. The challenges have, have been imputed into stock prices. So, Market down 17, tech down 25%, mid-cap software down 50%. It has a lot of the worries have been reflected in stock prices. In contrast, a lot of these private assets only took down a mark in the first quarter of, of down 10%. And if you look at what you can buy in public markets right now, it's effectively a 50% discount to what 
uh, private companies were raising last year. So I just make the point that the valuations are arguably more attractive now in public versus private markets. Um, the second point I would make is that I think there's really interesting assets that are really only available in public markets, things that are capital and, and intensive, for example, and that would include semis, which we've already talked about. But if you want to own best-in-class semis, you do need to look in public markets for those. And that semis are, of course, the base infrastructure for all of the innovation we talked about today are going to grow at multiples of GDP and are mostly available in public markets. I would say there's companies that are highly regulated uh, in the utility space that look interesting. Those are interesting assets to own if we do have a more inflationary environment. And they're also, if you pick the right ones, some of the leaders in climate transition, which we've identified as a very important theme over the next decade, mostly available in public markets. And then finally, um, you know, you can avoid binary outcomes in public markets by owning um, different parts of the supply chain and owning more diversified baskets uh, and putting those together on the supply chain point, I would just say we really let, we talked about the future of healthcare being interesting. And then specifically, we love the developments happening in genomics and um, huge uh, amount of opportunity in the biologic space. We do own those drug companies. I'm happy to come back to that. But we also own a company called West Pharmaceuticals that makes the rubber stoppers for biologic drugs uh, in the small and mid-cap space. So there's just such a uh, in the public markets, you just get such a strong array of companies all across the supply chain that enables you to have more latitude in the way you can implement um, implement some of these themes. So own both, but public markets on sale now, and also a lot of reasons to to make sure that you have capital invested there of things that exist in public markets that that don't necessarily exist in private markets. The the rubber stoppers for test tubes I, that's got to be recession proof too. I like I like that one. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna look into them. Yeah. They have a 70% market share uh, globally in that space. And as you can imagine, there's they have this barriers to entry because it's, there's regulatory issues because they interact with the drug. Um, they have to be, the, the packaging actually has to be FDA approved. And yes, it should be resistant uh, somewhat in, in a recession. I, I would agree with you. And also a beneficiary of our continued booster. Right, right. Program. That's 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 pretty fascinating. I know. I'm, I think we're going to be getting boosters uh, every six months, it seems like. Hey, Katie, it's been refreshing to talk to you. I think we've gone almost a half an hour here and no one has even said the word crypto, which is mm-hmm. is, is very refreshing. But I, you know, it obviously is the other big story going on is just this, you know, bloodbath in crypto markets, Bitcoin down 50%. And obviously crypto has become pretty influential to the stock market, whether it be, you know, Tesla and, and MicroStrategy adding it to their balance sheets uh, in, in their treasuries, or, you know, years ago, uh, a company could add blockchain to its name and, and see its stock pop 20%. Um, you know, the, the chip makers, which I know you follow pretty closely, uh, you know, certain chip makers got a big boost from all the mining going on. How are you thinking about, or, or are you thinking about it at all now, given this, you know, big retrenchment in, in crypto prices? Is it sort of the type of sector you just avoid and, and let the, the dust fall where it may? Or is it, you know, is there opportunities there? How do you, how are you sort of thinking the way crypto can play into equity markets, uh, if at all? 
Well, as you guys know, there's actually not a lot of pure play publicly listed ways to get exposure to crypto. So it's actually not a space we spend a lot of time on, um, particularly with regards to the coins themselves, because they're just they're not part of our investable universe. Um, I I will say, um, and I know you've heard people say this before, so it's not going to sound particularly brave, but I do believe it to be quite true um, that the blockchain technology underpinning that is is highly disruptive and is something that we spend a lot of time thinking about and we express it through our positioning in the payment space. So if you look at financials broadly as a category, um, the way we're positioned there is that we still like the the big banks. Um, it turns out it's a good business model to loan money um, and, and hopefully uh, get the loans paid back um, and have high net interest margins when rates are going up. These are actually good assets to own. And again, they offer some diversity to portfolios in an environment where growth's not performing. So we continue to like the best in class banks. Um, and then on the other side, in the more growth oriented space, we're, we're actually avoiding a lot of the, a lot of the fintech space um, because writ, writ large, because it's, obviously clearly highly competitive. And also these companies and management teams, many of them haven't worked through a credit cycle before, which gives us pause. Um, But we do like, however, some of the payment companies. Um, And so and some of them actually are, uh, you know, going to be leaders in blockchain disruption. And so that's really where we express that thesis in, in our portfolios. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Katie, you talked about having fun. Um, I don't know if you realize this. Voldana's idea of fun is uh, watching grammar videos, videos about grammar. And uh-huh. I think her other her, her other true. fun thing to do is is to read a story I've already edited and look for typos. That's kind of her. So if, <laughs> if you can figure out a way to monetize those two <laughs> things, uh, I'm all ears. But for the podcast, 
the way we have fun is uh, gawking at the craziest things we've seen in markets this week. Uh, right. Our proud tradition. So uh, I think it's time to pivot, pivot to the crazy. There's been no shortage of crazy things, uh, Katie. So ho- hopefully you, you found something to, uh, to dazzle with us. <laughs> with. I think your clients, this is this, the pressure's on Katie. Your clients really want to know the craziest thing you saw, but we'll start with Valdana. Valdana, what's the craziest thing you saw this week? I think I'm going to go with the obvious. And I actually had a couple of listeners reach out and, and flag it to me as well. And and I know you had been looking at it, Mike, and I had been looking at it and you and I ended up writing about it together. But uh, I want to give a shout out to Brian Reichholf and at Dr. Einstein, who both sent over the, the whole, whole Terra Luna debacle to me. Brian had sent me this super interesting thread about how it actually how that stable coin became unpegged and everything that had happened there. And then uh, also Dr. Einstein and, and apologies, but I don't know his actual name. So we're just going with with his Twitter handle. <laughs> but he he was mentioning how it fell. You know, I think it was worth something like he said, 30 billion dollars. And then it fell to just a tremendous, tremendous amount over just a couple of days. So that by far is the craziest thing. Yeah, it, it really is. Luna, I think the coin was worth 116 in early April. It's now worth $116. Now it's worth, I don't know, 85 cents the last time I checked. And loyal listeners may remember, we actually did an interview with Do Kwan, uh, who is the guy behind all of this uh, about, I think about a year and a half ago. So if you scroll through your podcasts, you might be able to uh, find that one. Um, and he talks about stable coins and synthetic equities and everything else they're working on. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, fascinating story and, and really kind of, kind of scary when you think of, um, how big that project had gotten. I think Terra, uh, after Ethereum was like the second biggest blockchain, uh, for a while there. So, um, a lot to play out in, in that story. Uh, Katie, how about you? Did you see anything crazy in markets this week? I mean, yeah, that, that, that question, I have a lot of answers to Um, a a lot of, a lot of crazy things. I mean, I think the thing that we, one interesting thing and that we're, that I want to highlight is that um, I would be wary of people that say, look at things and say to you, oh, this is a great opportunity to buy this because it's as cheap as it's been in five years, or it's as cheap as it's been in 10 years. Because if we've entered an environment where capital is not free again, and that there's inflation and the central bank's going to be fighting it, it may actually not matter to compare valuations now versus five years ago. But there are putting that context out there, there are still things that look really interesting from a valuation perspective through different types of metrics. And so one that stands out to me is what's happening right now in the biotech space. Um, So something that interests me is that if you look at XBI as an example, um, this is the small and mid-cap biotech ETF. Um, Its market cap is now of the whole ETF um, a little bit less than $500 billion. If you take that, you compare it to cash on the balance sheet of large pharma companies. So just take the top 12 largest pharma companies globally. They have $600 billion of cash on their balance sheet. So cash on balance sheet of big pharma companies is actually larger than the market cap of small mid-cap biotech. Um, And the last time we got anywhere near those types of extremes was actually in 
2015, which was the last bottom for biotech. So again, not very skilled at calling things over days or weeks or even months, but it would suggest to me if it's the part of the market that you're looking to get involved in, those valuations are very meaningful and I think quite supportive. Does that suggest at all that some of those big, bigger biotech firms might go on a, a little bit of a shopping spree, you know, and, and snatch up some of those smaller firms? Being acquisitive has been quite helpful to some large pharma companies because they need to stay on the leading edge of innovation. And obviously, some of that innovation is happening in the small space. So it is possible um, that you will actually see some takeouts. Uh, and in fact, we, we've seen a couple. Um, or and also intentions to do that in the last few weeks. So the answer is yes. And I think that that level of firepower suggests that there's some floor to these companies. Now, the reality is some of these biotech companies, when you know, I can keep going on and on and saying how some of them are trading for less than cash in the balance sheet or less than cash, plus their enterprise value, um, et cetera, they are burning cash. I mean, that's what they do. They spend a lot of cash <laughs> trying to, to get these drugs to the market, right. but they're not all they're not all going under. They're not all worth less than the cash on their balance sheet. So I, I think um, there there is opportunity there and it does suggest a floor. Yeah. Anyway, I will uh, pivot now to my craziest thing. As Vildana will tell you, Katie, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the art market, especially uh, the crazy art market, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. And uh, so I'd like art when it has a message. So this brings us uh, to a story from the Irish time, their Times. There's a young Irish uh, artist named Shane Burkery, 30 years old. He decided to paint a picture of a nude Vladimir Putin. Um, and why, you may ask, would he paint a nude Vladimir Putin? And he said, uh, he wanted it to be a reminder that this person is also just a man. And I guess it's just to highlight how absurd it is that so many people are dying and lives are being destroyed because of decisions he makes. So his solution was to uh, paint Putin in the buff. And then they auctioned it off uh, in an auction to benefit uh, the Red Cross's efforts in uh, Ukraine. So that obviously gives us, Vildana, an opportunity here to play The Price is Right. What do you suppose the winning bid for a nude painting of Vladimir Putin went for in an auction in Ireland? Uh, listeners can't see me, but I'm totally rolling my eyes. As, as, as you do. On this as one. As you do. As I, sh- as I should be. Uh, I'll go with, it, it's got to be low, right? Unless some I'm oligarch is on it. <laughs> You can never discount the oligarch bid, but I'm not. I'm keeping a <laughs> poker face. Not saying either way. I'm gonna go with fifty thousand dollars. Fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, and that's a that's like I think that's too okay. High. Well, it's, it's it's in British pounds, so I'd have to I'd have to look up the exchange oh, right. rate. But well, thirty five thousand British pounds. Yeah, thousand British pounds. Katie, this is the time to impress your clients here mm-hmm. with <laughs> with your skills in vet. I think Katie's really If I just spend a half hour with you guys talking about markets and someone will be impressed by my answer to this, I'm I'm in the wrong business. I'm doing something wrong. But you get the I don't, lu- I would, you get the yeah, luxury of prices right rules. So uh, okay. if Vildana's saying thirty five thousand, you uh-huh. know, it's if she goes over, she uh, she's uh, wrong. So you you could you know okay you could bid I'm going to say oh I can do the I can do the one dollar. You could is that you what could. my but okay. As she points gonna, out, you never know what some oligarch might might. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. 
I'm not sure. I, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna editorialize at all. But all of my thoughts are captured in uh, one dollar. <laughs> and that is why I'm jealous of that bit. I w- I went with that. I-, I wish I went with that. That is why she's the CIO. Uh, <laughs> your clients will be impressed, Katie. Twenty two hundred pounds, which still seems high, but uh, uh, nothing like big spender Veldana was ready to bid on on that. I was thinking of the oligarchs. Yeah, it's true. I, I, what, but they, their money's all tied up. They can't, they can't access mm. it and spend it. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, that was a weird one. That's it was. Yes. Yeah. yeah that wasn't. I, I take, yeah, I that take that weird. as a compliment, right? Is that? No, not on this. One. <laughs> <laughs> Super weird. <laughs> all, right. all right, Katie. I promise you, that's the most awkward segment of the podcast. Also, no, but I also feel like you kind of cheated because you were supposed to like give your fun fact, but you made it a test for us. I don't yeah. know that. I feel he like he always was... cheats. Yeah. Okay. He always cheats. Yeah. That's yeah. standard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's how I know. Yeah. That's standard. how I roll. It's a long, <laughs> long, que- super long questions that take like twenty yep. minutes to ask and cheating on crazy things. Well, I, I, you know, I. I think I was born to be a game show host. So I'm just as me just kind of, you know, throwing that out there. Trying out. Yeah. For it, if yeah. Price is Right ever needs Bob Barker re- retires. I don't, he must have retired already. But anyway, just <laughs> just throw that out there. I, I'm, I'm no, but is there most importantly, what's like if you said this is the price is right. You took your fact. You made it into a contest. I, I, I've won it. Sounds like. So what's the prize? Like what? Right. Oh, right. <laughs> Yeah, you, the the re- respected admiration of all of the oh. what goes up <laughs> listeners and an invitation to prize. an invitation to pl- please join us again because it's always uh, such a treat to get your insights, Katie, and and hear what you guys are up to at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, a small uh, Wall Street firm that uh, maybe a maybe one or two listeners have heard of. of I don't know. <laughs> I, I wanna I really appreciate you guys having me here and I just wanna leave people with the message that I know this is a very difficult market environment. Uh we're working very hard for our clients. Don't panic. It it doesn't pay. Uh it's very difficult to time markets, you know, stay invested and um we'll get to the other side of this just like every other correction that we've had and been able to manage through. So um appreciate the chance to be on here and share that message with people. Uh, Thank you so much for your time, Katie. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Katie. Bye, guys. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. 
Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.